morning. Um, please take out your Wellspring binders and turn them over so you can look at the disciplines as I go over them. My husband and I sat silently in our room with the door closed and just looked at each other. Finally, one of us said, I don't know what to do. And the other replied, I don't know what to do either. We were truly at a loss and had absolutely no idea what actions we should take or how we should respond. My husband and I have been blessed with two children. One child professes Christ and the other does not. Both children are gifts from the Lord, given to us for his glory and our good. But in this current season, parenting our non-believer is super challenging. We were in that room and struggling because we had absolutely no idea how to parent in that moment. And the truth is that this season is a marathon. There are no quick fixes and there is no guaranteed outcome. This is a season that daily highlights my weaknesses and can quickly lead to feelings of inadequacy. Thus, I know I cannot navigate this season without God and without shepherding my heart. This season is one of the reasons why, for me, the disciplines are not optional, but essential. I am going to walk through the disciplines from a personal perspective, saying why I need them and why they are important to me right now. But we are all living in a sinful world and are all facing hard things. So, as you listen, just fill in the blanks of why you need the disciplines because what of what is going on in your own life. Discipline one, the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. Oh, how I need to shepherd my heart always and especially now. I need to point my heart toward God because in the midst of this trial, it is easy for me to wander from gazing at God to only seeing the present challenges. I must fight the lies that I easily run to with the truth of God's word. I need the disciplines because there are times I don't want to get up and face the trials of the day. I need the disciplines because I often don't want to get out of bed. And I also need them because I can get up caught worrying about what could happen next. It's challenging with an unsaved teenager right now. And if things continue as they're going, it will get much harder. I can easily let myself be overcome by imagining so many heartbreaking, difficult scenarios. So I turn to verses like Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I must not worry about tomorrow or next month or next year or even five years from now. God's mercies are new every morning, and he will give me what I need to get through today. I need to be faithful and serve him today, and then trust him with tomorrow, and next month, and next year. I need to be in the word when I am anxious, to be reminded what it says in Philippians 4, 6-7. through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I must direct my heart to hand over the souls of my children to the sovereign goodness and wisdom of God and forsake anxiety. I need the disciplines 
because without them, my sinful heart tends to start down a path of envy of others who have kids that love the Lord and want to live for the Lord. When my mind starts to go down the path of envy and discontentment, I must be in the word, shepherding my heart toward the sovereignty of God. I need to shepherd my heart to remind myself that God has given to me what is best for me. I need discipline one because I can find myself wanting to give up, wanting to be done parenting, wanting to not have to keep battling. So I need to be in the word, guiding my heart with verses like Hebrews 12, one through four. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And Psalm 9, 9 through 10, the Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. It is only through constantly shepherding my heart with God's word that I can look for peace, not in the ending of our storm, but in trusting God and his word in the midst of it. I cannot save my child. And when my mind starts down the path of despair, I need to turn my heart to the truth, that I am called to be faithful in what God has given me. Discipline two, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Oh, how I need to shepherd my heart always and especially now so that I can minister to those in my home. I need to shepherd my heart I need to fix my heart on God and his word so that I can minister to a child that does not love the Lord. Parenting is hard in so many ways. It is especially fatiguing with a child that does not well love what you love. With a child that has no desire to live for the things of God and that really loves the world. I need to shepherd my heart so that I can learn to love as Christ loved as I love a child who often treats us poorly and has no desire to live the way we are making him live. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 is a great reminder for me in this. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I need to shepherd my heart so I can minister in my home. Often there is an undercurrent of tension in our home. We are emotionally exhausted and raw. It is easy for me to lack joy. So I need to turn to God's word in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. And repeat to myself over and over and over, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I steer my heart toward God and his word, knowing that it is only when my eyes are fixed in him that I will find joy. Romans 15, 13 further encourages me, 
Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, how I need to train my heart with the gospel because if I don't know the gospel well, how will I be ready to share it with the person in my home that desperately needs it? God uses people to share the gospel with non-believers and I live with a non-believer. Discipline three. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home or priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. I have done Wellspring six times, which means I've read and heard the disciplines over a hundred times. And it was only as I was working on this talk that the following phrase in Discipline 3 struck me. Look down at it really quickly. Keeping her God-given ministry. I need the disciplines. I need to focus my heart on the Word of God because I need to be reminded that my unsaved child and all that that entails is given to me from God. I need to shepherd my heart toward the Word of God so that the next time Matthew and I are sitting in our room not knowing what to do, I will fix my heart on God. I need the discipline so that I fix my heart on God so that I can recite Psalm 100 and cling to it and live it. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Discipline 3 also says that I should step into the church. For me, some things, some hard things are much harder to share in the church. To share with people that I have an unsaved child means that I have to command my heart to battle guilt, pride, shame, and embarrassment. It would be so much easier to keep it all quiet, yet I am encouraged by the perseverance and faithfulness of others, so I know that I need to direct my heart toward God so that I can step into the church and shepherd others toward God and the gospel. There are unexpected benefits of training my heart how to respond to the circumstances that God has planned for me. First, in spite of my desire not to share with others, Sharing with others helps me to further shepherd my heart. When I say out loud to someone else, yes, this is hard, but this is what God has for us, I am preaching truth to others and I am preaching truth to myself. Second, and this is a perfect example of why discipline three is so important. I only added this part after a friend proofread my talk and reminded me of the positive effects of guiding my heart. I had been focusing on my sin and the need to fight it. I needed my friend to point me to the part that I wasn't seeing. And that's why I need to be involved in the church, to have someone point me to the truth that I don't see. So the second unexpected benefit of steering my heart is that it not only directs my heart away from sin, but also towards seeing evidences of grace, grace in each day in my family, in my sanctification process. Maybe it's a meal where there is laughter, a conversation that is normal and without conflict, 
an unexpected hug. Or maybe it's remembering specifics of how God made each of my kids unique and as important pieces of our family. And mostly, if I stop and take time to reflect, I see evidences of God's grace and how much he has taught me through parenting. If I am not shepherding my heart, I will not only miss seeing the good things, but I will find myself full of worry, envy, defeat, sadness, and shame. It is only through shepherding my heart with the word that I can serve the Lord with gladness in the midst of hard things. It is only through shepherding my heart that I can give thanks to God for the opportunity to parent my children. It is only through shepherding my heart that I can set aside my fear of man and attempt to encourage others in the body. And it is truly only through shepherding my heart that I can say, even if things get harder and my child is never saved, that the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Did you hear all that? Did you notice all the examples I gave of my heart being deceitful, worry, envy, lack of joy, defeat, shame, etc.? There are so many ways that as I walk through this season, my feelings can start to lead me down a path of sin. So many ways, and in so many of them, my deceitful heart tries to justify my sinful thoughts and feelings. In your own hard, or even in your own easy, what does your deceitful heart tempt you with? We all have deceitful hearts, and that is why we need the disciplines. It's the purpose of Wellspring. Let's look at it on the top of the back of your notebooks. Because my heart is deceitful, and it is prone to sin, I need to shepherd my heart toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that I live a gospel-transformed life, thus strengthening the church and its gospel purpose. Yeah, that was great. I'm grateful for Rachel sharing that very transparently, uh, very uh, in, in an encouraging way because then we can uh, appreciate what the Lord's doing in her life and how the Lord's used the word in her life. And uh, that's actually what we're going to do this morning in the text that I was assigned. I was assigned this text and I have no complaints because mm -hmm. it is phenomenal and um, the Lord knew that I needed it. Um, this is a text that I have studied in depth a, while, a couple of years ago, and so I went back to it with fresh vigor this week, and I def desperately needed it. Um, grab your Bibles and open up to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, you, have in your, you have a little outline there so you can take notes. Um, but if I had to title this as a sermon, it's just kind of a Bible study. And by the way, I'm probably going to just, I'm comfortable monologuing. If you have no questions, that's fine. You're not offending me. But if you do have questions, you should ask, because that's the, the benefit of having a smaller, smaller venue like this. So if something I'm saying doesn't make sense, then just say, hey, you know, throw up the, red, the white flag. Not the red flag. I don't know what that means. The white flag and say, hey, pause. I surrender. I got a question here. Help me out. Um, but uh, other than if I don't see a hand, I'll probably just continue uh, because I, I'm excited about working through this text. It's, uh, it's three verses, starting in chapter 4, verse 11 all the way through verse 13. And it is a critical text, one of those paramount texts 
on the role of the Word of God, uh, especially the role in, of the Word of God in shepherding our hearts. Um, let me read the passage, just verse starting in cha- Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, through verse 13. Hebrews 4, verse 11, through verse 13. Okay, just follow along with me as I read this. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Well, to appreciate these words, I kind of I wanted to give you an illustration of what it might be like to study these three verses um, on their own. Uh, last year I read, a, I read a book, and it concluded with these words. This is the last uh, couple of sentences. May these pages, pages help to arouse in a generation that did not know him a bright vision of the significance of a life that came to be marked by steadfast faith in the crucified one and by complete abandon in commitment to the service of God. As his favorite hymn expresses it, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. As I read those words, they were clear. You probably even benefited just from hearing the conclusion of this book. Um, Apparently a life that at least this biographer thought was a compelling example from a previous generation of what it means to live a sacrificial life devoted entirely to Christ. And you could even appreciate the clarity of his, the, the object of the biography, the subject, sorry, the subject of the biography. You can appreciate his favorite hymn Um, when I survey the wondrous cross, particularly a stanza that's describing what his biographer says is true of his life, you still don't even know who the book is about. You don't even know who he is. It's J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. And when you read those words, the author intended the reader to appreciate the cost and sacrifice and the turmoil of this man's life. He poured out his life teaching in an institution that was devoted to the scriptures when he went there, but it went south and he had to leave everything. He had to leave a tenured professorship. He had to he started his own seminary. He was so devoted to the church and to the word of God, he was disciplined out of a increasingly liberal denomination the object of national scandal at the level of being slandered in newspapers at, at, at a national variety. I mean, this is like the social media target because he was devoted to the Word of God. And when you have his life in mind as you read those last few sentences, they take on a greater significance. And in, in a very important way, that's actually true of these verses. We read Hebrews 4, 11 to 13, but 
and I know you know this because you, you guys love this Bible study and you're well taught, you've got to read it in context. And we're actually reading the last three verses of the second warning in the epistle of the Hebrews. So to appreciate, to really benefit from those three verses, I have to kind of back up and give you a little bit of context. So verse 11, obviously is a command, let's be diligent to enter that rest. So if I titled this, I would call it work to rest. Work to rest. That's your obligation. Work to rest. Because the command in verse 11 is very clear. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. That's critical. And we have to do that. We have to understand that. And how do you do that? comes in verse 12, by the word of God. And so before we look at one of the greatest verses on the power and effect of the word of God in shepherding our own hearts, we need to understand it in context. Namely, kind of like when I read that conclusion of that biography, you didn't even know who the biography was about. We might not know, we might not be clear on what it even means to consider this rest. Work to rest. Spare no effort. Be completely diligent. Apply your hand and your heart and your mind, ladies, to entering rest. What does that even mean? What does it mean to rest? What is this rest? What does that rest look like? Let's back up and we'll go to the beginning of this warning. It starts in chapter 3, verse 7. And so we're going to just kind of take a running start. And it's going to feel like a sprint. It's going to feel like I'm hardly even, you know, like sprinting from verse to verse to verse because we've got to get through a good chunk of material. But when this is clear in our minds, then we're going to be able to benefit from the command, verse 11, in a fresh way, in a way that's, that the author intended. So let's do that. Verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, that's profound because he's just simply quoting Psalm 95. And he doesn't say it just as David says, which would mean the same thing. But this says, just as the Holy Spirit says, which is true. The Holy Spirit wrote the scripture. And so this is one of those great proof texts because he's introducing the text that we know who the human author is. And he says, look, the Holy Spirit already said this. And then he just starts quoting it word for word. Quoting Psalm 95, particularly from the second half of that psalm, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So verse 11 that we're studying in chapter 4 is a command to show diligence to enter this rest. Notice in verse 11 it says that rest because he's concluding a warning and really, honestly, you could say this, he's concluding an exposition of Psalm 95. He's really preaching a sermon on Psalm 95 for our benefit so that we can know how to shepherd our own hearts. So, in Psalm 95 you have this statement, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The warning of Psalm 95 is, every time you hear God speak, do not harden your heart. There's a very real threat that when you hear God speak, you might be hostile, which would represent hardness, you might be 
critical, which would represent hardness. You might be indifferent, which would represent hardness. And you might simply neglect it, which would represent hardness. So ladies, every time you hear God speak, there's an obligation on your heart to not harden. That's the sum and substance of this whole warning, and it's so profound. The example given in Psalm 95, and this quote, I'm, I'm looking, I'm not turning there, just stay in Hebrews, I'm sorry. But he's, as he's quoting from Psalm 95, he's give, he gives the example, David does originally, from the trial in the wilderness. Okay, you remember the historical reference here. This is Numbers 14. Joshua, Caleb, and ten other spies come back from the promised land. They're looking at this promised land. You remember what they said? It's lush. It's green. It's amazing. I mean, they're bringing these clusters of grapes that they had to put on poles and like, carry like, on, on a set of scaffolding. I mean, it's like, it's, that's a massive... I, I don't know how big those grapes are, but that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty productive land that the grapes are so large that it takes two grown men to carry a bunch, a one bunch of them. Uh, they don't sell those at Costco, last I checked. I mean, this is incredibly luxurious land. They said, this is amazing. But big problem. There's these massive, hostile, angry giants there, and they're just going to annihilate us. And Joshua and Caleb said, look at this land that God's given to us. He told us to go in and take, take possession. In that moment, they have an obligation to obey God. The nation listens to the ten, not the two. And they disobey God. God said, go up and take possession. That's all he did. He just said, go take possession. Well, what did they do? They start justifying it. They start, they start thinking about it. They start reasoning. And according to their own assessment of God's command, you know, God's command here, that's just too over the top. God, you know, if you commanded me to um, rejoice when things are going well, that's, 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 that makes sense. But if you command me not to complain and grumble when things are miserable, when you tell me to give thanks, as Rachel just shared from First Thess 5, give thanks for all things, for this is the will of the Lord. When you ask me to do that and my life's miserable, that's too much. Now we've started to justify. Now we've started to make excuses. We've relied on our own understanding. We've created this little rationalistic, it's not rational, not rational. Disobedience is never rational, but it's rationalistic. My thinking becomes the authority, and I stop obeying what God actually said because I've found a way to say that that, that can't apply to me. I'm exempt. I shouldn't have to obey that. And that's what they did. So verse 9, they, they were testing God, and they saw his works for 40 years he provides for them. For 40 years. They're wandering through the wilderness. And their, their sandals didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. He provided for them. He, I mean, it's like we're in the middle of the desert here. What, what, what are we going to eat and drink? Okay, I'll just put rain food on you in the midst of the wilderness. I'm just going to drop a buffet all over the place. And they're just going to, they're gonna, oh, no, I don't care. We don't trust God. And God says, go take up, take up the land. They saw 40 years of demonstration that God is faithful. Just, I can do whatever I tell you to do. I can bring it to fruition. I can make it happen. And they had 40 years of evidence, and it wasn't enough. 
They didn't listen to God when he said, go and take possession of the land. Their sophisticated justification was, I can't beat a guy that big in hand-to-hand combat, so we don't go. And they disobeyed the Lord. So verse 10, therefore I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. Notice, he doesn't say, I was angry with this generation because they weren't strong enough to beat bigger people. The flaw wasn't in their skill with the sword or the size of their stature, the military prowess. Their flaw was that they go astray in their heart. Mark it down. Any time I hear God speak, my heart doesn't respond with humility, brokenness, awe, adoration, and a fervent sense of responsibility to make sure that what I'm seeing on the page of Scripture and hearing from the voice of my Creator, that that becomes true in my inner man. That's hardness. And that's the warning here. That's why it's so sobering. And so he says, in his wrath, he says, they will not enter my rest. So verse 12, he starts to preach after finishing the quote. Take care. And I could wish that that was probably translated a little differently. The word take care is repeated in the original in verse 19, so we see. And so it forms a bookend. It's the exact same word in verse 12 and in verse 19, but in in the NASB it's translated take care and then so we see. So just to appreciate the bookend here, you might just say, look out brethren and so we see, or, or maybe even see to it and then so we see. Just to use the same English word so you can see how he's bookending this exhortation. He takes Psalm 95 and says, now here's what you got to watch out for, audience. And so he's saying that to us this morning. Wellspring, ladies, take care that there not be in anyone among you, anyone is singular, of you is plural. Watch out that there not be in anyone among you. And note, and it doesn't come across that the command to take care, or as I'm saying, see to it, that's plural. So ladies, you have a plural, corporate obligation in the body of Christ. This is not a verse you can obey in the quietness of your own life in your own home. This is a verse that has to be obeyed in the context of the local church. It's a plural command, and your obligation is to watch out in the lives around you in GBC to make sure that there's not anyone among you, among us, with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's the description of what happens when somebody hears God speak and comes up with a sophisticated justification to not do what he said. So now it becomes our obligation to watch out. The only two in this historical example who watched out, (laughs) I'm creating words as I go, saw to it, looked, Joshua and Caleb. They're looking at the people around them. They're saying, wait, 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 guys. It's true. There's giants there. But who cares? Didn't God say this? Didn't he give us a command? Can't we, must we not act on this? Just simply do what God said. And then the argument unfolds for the rest of Numbers 14. And they win, and the 10 win the day. The corporate effect of not shepherding our hearts is massive. And the obligation of shepherding our hearts is corporate. And so watch out that none of us fall away from the living God. This is a warning against apostasy because apostasy always starts 
with not hearing God's voice, but slowly hardening when he speaks. Verse 13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And when I get to this verse, it's funny, I remember, I remember even as a, as a young believer, the first time I read Hebrews, I remember reading this verse and thinking, like, what is that all about? I remember reading that verse thinking, as long as it is still called today, and I'm like, that's some sort of silly joke, isn't it? Because at what day would it ever not be today? You know, like, I used to teach a Bible study uh, on the south, in the south county, of uh, southern part of, the, of Palm Beach County, and uh, it was at this um, commercial headquarters, and they have this offices, a business owner in our church let us use it. It was a strategic for a geographical area there. We were, had, some, had some, a lot of brand new um, members of our church. And it, was in a, and it was in a commercial area, but right next to this um, business, um, head, business office uh, complex was this bar. And so every time I drive to Bible study, I drive by the bar, and they never change their marquee on the front of this um, kind of weird little bar. I think it was a storefront for something else, but that's, that's another story. Uh, the marquee said, free beer tomorrow, <laughs> right? And I thought, that's kind of like the joke that he's doing here. Today, as long as it's called today. Hey, it's always today. Hey, it's always valid. And I thought it was just some sort of weird wordplay because I wasn't reading it in context. But even coming out of the quote from Psalm 95, you can appreciate what he's saying. What is today? Well, today in Psalm 95, go back to verse 7b. Today, if you hear his voice. Today is every moment you hear God speaking. So in verse 13, what he's saying is, encourage one another. This is the corporate obligation of this command to shepherd your hearts corporately. Now I'm bringing an ecclesiology into Wellspring to say, hey, as we shepherd our hearts, this is a corporate obligation, a church-wide obligation, because we must encourage one another, as long as it's still called today, as long as we still keep hearing God speak, we need to keep doing this. Every time we hear God speak, Watch out. Encourage one another so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceptive. It's deceitful. It will lie to you. The transgressor speaks to his own heart. He speaks lies, Psalm 36 says. He deceives himself so that he can't discover his sin or even hate it. David says in Psalm 36, verses 1 and 2. You can't even discover your sin, you become blind to it, and you won't hate it. That's the speech of the transgressor. His heart speaks to him from within, and he starts listening to the deceptive heart. And sin will deceive you every time. And there's a lot of sophisticated little lies that sin will speak to you when God is speaking, particularly when God is speaking in an area that's going to cost us. In an area that's particularly acute pressing on our dreams and ambitions and desires. Particularly if those dreams and ambitions and desires are, are connected to something that you might know to be true and godly. Per perhaps per to the way that God made you. Even some of the uniquenesses because the way God wired you as a woman. There might even be particular temptations to say, but I, all I want to do is be faithful in this God-given role and calling. And so why would you make such a hard demand on us? That's where the temptations are going to come. That's where the deceitfulness is going to come. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, 
condition of your assurance and your current profession is conditioned on the ongoing endurance holding fast to the word of Christ, to his commands. Verse 15, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Now our author asks some questions. He says, who provoked him when they heard? Um, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And this might not, it's, it's debated whether this is a question. If it's not a question, then our author's making a point. But not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. Um, either way, we obviously, he obviously knows Joshua and Caleb were faithful. And so two among two million is not a high percentage. So either way, whether he's asking the question, indeed, did, didn't everybody offend him? That would just be a, only a slight exaggeration. Or he's making the statement of fact, indeed, not everybody. I mean, in fact, there were two who were faithful. But then he goes on in verse 17, And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Wasn't it those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of disobedience. See it? Which was it? Disobedience or unbelief? What was the cause of why they didn't enter rest? Disobedience or unbelief? Both. The answer is yes. In verse 18, they didn't enter because of disobedience. Verse 19, they didn't enter because of unbelief. Not being persuaded by the word means I'm not yielding to it. So don't deceive your heart and say that you believe God's word when you're not yielded to it. And that's one of the most important ways that we shepherd our heart, isn't it? I saw it this week. I want to say, I believe this about God. I believe this about his word. I believe this about the truth. I believe this about the church. I believe this about X, Y, Z. I believe it. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just struggling. Do I believe it? Is that really the biblical term? Because to, be, to believe it means I'm yielded to it. And so the author of Hebrews can even use the word disobedience and unbelief synonymously in that context. So now we've got to move on to chapter 4, and we're still kind of answering the question. We're going to start, I'm going to start focusing in now on the question that he's answering. Now we're going to start focusing on what is this rest. Verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Now he's starting to get to this issue of rest. The, the psalmist says it in verse, uh, in, quoted in 3.11, they shall not enter my rest. So now in 4.1, he says we need to fear. So there is a divine rest. It's God's rest. The word my rest means it's something that God possesses. He has this rest and he wants us to enter it. But he says to those who are not persuaded by his word, who disobey his word, who are hardened by his word, they don't enter his rest. So, the clear implication for us as Christians is, we should fear. Because a promise remains. I mean, there is this rest promised to us this morning. We are not currently experiencing it. And we might miss out on it. That's the clear implication. We actually could miss out on this rest. It's promised to us. It's held out in front of us. So, we, the only logical conclusion is we should fear. We should fear. 
lest any one of us seem to have fallen short of it, come short of it. Ladies, I don't want any one of you to come short of it. I don't want to come short of it. And that's why we all desperately need this warning. If you were an unbeliever, you need this warning. If you are a Christian walking in a carnal fashion, you need this warning. If you are broken and walking in a path accordance with repentance and with Christ, and if you're a mature Christian, you need this warning. Verse 2 says, For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also did. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. What a compelling explanation for this. Watch out. Let's fear. Why should we fear? Because that generation didn't make it to God's divine rest. We cannot think in an arrogant fashion and think, well, of course we're going to make it, because we've got God's word. They did too. They were the living audience of Moses' last four Sabbath sermons. That's the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. That's some of the most profound preaching, second only to the Lord Jesus Christ, in the history of creation. And they heard that, they were exposed to that, they saw his works for 40 years. They saw his power put on display. They heard preaching. They heard the revelation of God. They saw him speaking from Sinai. They had it recorded for them in written fashion. They didn't enter. So don't presume. Ah, oh, go to GBC. A part of Wellspring. I got the New Testament. That's his point. Yep they had those benefits and those blessings. Maybe not the name GBC and maybe not the New Testament, but you understand, you can't presume on what you're given by way of spiritual exposure. They had that too. Why didn't they, why'd they fall short? Because they did hear. They heard those sermons. They heard the revelation. They were exposed to all of it. It wasn't united with faith. It wasn't united with faith. Faith completely embraces God's word and where it sees failure it experiences brokenness and mourning and it turns to God for the lack that's faith that's what it means to respond to God's word and faith now this is where it gets particularly interesting from 3 all the way through 13 becomes one of the most challenging texts in Hebrews because He's clearly focusing in on what does it mean for God to say, I want you to enter my rest, and if you disobey, you're, you won't enter my rest. What is this divine rest? He starts to focus in on that. And so we're going to have to do, pay attention to what he says in verses 3 to 10, and I'm going to do a little bit of biblical theology as well, and I've got to be quick on this because we've got to watch our time. Verse 3, For we who, have had, we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, what's interesting here is in verse 3, you have this statement about entering. And the question here is, what does it mean to enter God's rest? And I'll just be honest, there's a lot of, there's a lot of explanations out there about God's rest that get a very, very confused. Um, long and short of it, what does it mean to enter God's rest? I'm going to show you from the Old Testament in no uncertain terms divine rest is when creation is restored to the state 
that it was in in day seven. Does that make sense? Divine rest is when creation is restored to the state in which it existed on day seven. That's divine rest. A lot of people struggle with that. Some theologians come to Hebrews chapter four and they say, well, what, what rest means here is it means you, you rest from your works. Well, and what do you mean by that? Let's just, let's just try that on real quick and let me show you why that, I'm gonna have some problems with that here from Hebrews four. What if it meant resting from my works in the sense of I'm trying to please God? and I'm seeking to be justified. I'm trying to put a big smile on God's face. I want to please him by my own deeds. I want to show him, hey, I'm pretty much morally superior to other people that you might have to send to hell. Obviously, that's a lie, and obviously, that's not true. But is that what our author's saying here? He says, verse 11, therefore, let us be diligent. That means spare no effort, work really hard to enter that rest. If he's saying, try to get to a point where you don't have to prove yourself anymore, then he's actually calling you to work hard and work vigorously so that you can get to a point where you stop having to prove yourself by works of the law. That makes no sense at all. He would actually be calling you to work, to stop working. Some people might say, oh, no, it doesn't mean works of the law to be justified. Maybe it means works in the sense of a biblical sense for a Christian the works of sanctification. Well, that would mean that he's saying work really hard so you can stop pursuing sanctification. <laughs> Either way, no matter how you, if you take this as resting from works in the sense of our, our human works, uh, it just doesn't, doesn't quite make sense. The, the point is we are called to enter divine rest, God's rest. God's rest is what he wants us to enter. That's where he wants us to live. And so that's what we need to be focused on. So now, you go back to um, verse 3. Notice that he says, we who have believed enter that rest. It doesn't say we have entered that rest. It would have to be past tense if he's speaking to believers, saying, we who have believed have stopped working in order to earn our salvation. That kind of work, that's past tense. The days of legalism are over for the believer. This is present tense. It's you who believe are the ones entering you who currently believe, who have believed in the past and are believing now, you are currently in the process of entering. So it's still talking about something we haven't quite entered yet. It's a present tense verb. So verse 4 he says, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and now notice he's clearly, he's explicitly connecting Genesis 2-2 to this idea in Psalm 95 about God saying, I swore they will not enter my rest. So what's he do? He goes back to Genesis 2. Think about it, uh, audience to the Hebrews, and now I'm personalizing it for you. Think about it, Wellspring. I mean, ladies, this is connecting Psalm 95 to Genesis 2. Why is that important? Because look at what he says. He has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, uh, and maybe better is he has said in a certain location. He's not, he's not grasping at straws here. He's quoting it word for word. It sounds like he's just like, I don't know, somewhere. I don't remember where. But I mean, he quotes it word for word. The, the better translation is he says in a certain place, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. He takes Genesis 2.2, he connects it to Psalm 95, and he says they're talking about the same reality. That's so helpful. That's so helpful. Now let me pause right there. 
Um, when I studied the book of Hebrews, I taught the book of Hebrews um, uh, in about two, maybe about three and a half years, and um, it's just such a rich book. It, it probably tested my, it proved my lack of Bible knowledge probably more than any other book, maybe, maybe, maybe paired with Ecclesiastes. It was just overwhelming to realize how poorly versed I was in the Old Testament when I preached the book of Hebrews. And the author and the audience are so clearly fluent in the Old Testament that he works at light speed with assumed common knowledge about the Old Testament. And that's probably not true for you or I. So let me pause right here in Genesis 4, I'm sorry, in, in Hebrews 4, and let me give you a little bit of a biblical theology on rest. And this is going to take a few minutes, but then we're going to get back and you're like, man, you haven't got to the text yet. <laughs> but trust me, the text is going to unfold when, you, when this is in your mind. I want this to be in your mind that you think about diligence to rest, work hard to rest. What is divine rest? Well, as I mentioned, it's when creation is restored back to the position that it was in on day seven. It's pre-curse. It's the reverse of the curse. It's the establishment of a reign of righteousness. It's going to require a Messiah. It's going to require all enemies to be put down. The reverse of disasters, natural disasters, the animal order will be restored to peace and harmony. Lions will be plant, will eating grass with like like a, like a like an ox. Um, the asp and the uh, cobra will play with the infant in complete harmony. I mean, you're talking about the final enemy, death, being put down under the rule of man. The dominion that was given to man in Genesis is actually restored. And mankind actually gains dominion over the creation. This requires Messiah sitting on a throne, ruling from Zion. What is rest described as in the Old Testament? And we're going to have to be really quick on this because there are literally, I mean, what text do I not turn to? Rest in the Old Testament means, first of all, rest from labor and toil due to lush productivity in the land. Um, go to Genesis for a moment. Turn to Genesis, and I found this so fascinating. You, you remember the refrain, um, we're going we're to actually start in Genesis chapter 2, but while you're turning to Genesis chapter 2, do you remember in Genesis chapter 1 how Moses ends the account of every day of creation? And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Evening and uh, uh, morning the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. Evening and morning, the seventh day? Uh-uh. You ever notice that? You ever notice that refrain doesn't continue in day seven? Every single day except day seven ends with, there was evening and there was morning, that's the end of that day, and then move on to the next day, and then you get to seven. Verse, uh, chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then the Lord, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. The end of the creation account at the overview of the entire first week. And there's no final refrain. There was evening and morning the seventh day. It's not there. Moses writes it in such a way that the state of peace and the state of harmony and the productivity of the ground and the land as he created it is part of rest. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. He starts to get into the specific accounts, particularly the account of how he created man. 
This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day when God created the heaven and the earth. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Now, this verse, by the way, is one of the most abused verses by theistic evolutionists because they look back at Genesis 1 and they say, oh, well, God created greens on day 3, created man on day 6. Obviously, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 don't correlate. Therefore, it's poetry. Ah, evolution. <laughs> That's about as well thought out as it is. In fact, reality, what Moses is saying is, it's true, he does use the same word as he does in Genesis 1.11 when he creates the plants on the earth, vegetation. But that's because it's a word that means fruit-bearing. So God does create fruit-bearing plants before he creates man. But what Moses is saying in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, is he's saying there's no plants, and that's the one translated shrub, vegetation, or plant of the field, that means a fruit-bearing plant, in this sense, in the kind that require man to cultivate. Wow. Why is that the case? Because man's not even working. Man's resting. So, number one, you don't even have rain until after the fall. You don't even have rain, get this, until Genesis 6. The earth is created and it's at rest. It has a natural mist and irrigation system that never gets clogged with calcium deposits and the, the timer never gets warped and the zones never change and there's no leaks. It is perfectly created and it constantly is productive and producing everything that man needs to eat. It's self-replenishing. So it's those kind of plants, the ones that require cultivation, like Milo and wheat and rye and sorghum and the stuff that I grew up with in the Midwest. You don't just walk across, oh, there's a, mile, there's a wild wheat field. No, it requires cultivation. Those kind of plants didn't even exist yet because that requires work. And this is creation at rest. You read through, and now I don't have time to do all this, but in next year, as you read through this, maybe this year, as you read through the scriptures, read through the Old Testament and pay attention to every time it mentions rest and it Quite often, probably about a third of the time, it's going to be associated with rest from work in an agricultural sense. The prophecy in Isaiah 35 is you're going to see the lily and the crocus spring up in the desert. And um, no, my tour guide was wrong. When I went to Israel, my tour guide's name was Ami, Hebrew. He's, you know, not a, not a Jew, just a pagan. Ami is the Hebrew word for my people. And I told him that, and he's like, oh, wow, you know some Hebrew? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like... Wow, you, well, that's crazy. Why would, you, why would you know all that? I'm like, oh, because the, the Word of God. Oh, yeah, you're Christians. Okay, okay. So he's just, you know, cute little Christian. I'm glad you guys come here and we make money off of you. So we're driving from um, the Sea of Galilee down towards um, Jericho, and we're, we look out, you know, the, it's just desert. I mean, this is the opposite of no, the description you read in Numbers 14. I mean, Israel, the, the, the land, the way God gave it to the Israelites was so productive. And what you see now by way of desolation is a clear and permanent reminder of their unbelief. And Ami points out the window and reads the prophecy of Isaiah 35. And he sees a kibbutz out there that has irrigated this one little acre. And in this like, I mean, it looks like, it looks like Arizona. And then right there is this little patch of green. And he's like, see, like Isaiah 35 said. And I'm like, you're talking about rest. Rest means you don't have to work in a kibbutz and irrigate 
It's when God restores the order and the earth is actually going to be self-replenishing. Rest from agricultural work. This year, as you read through the Old Testament, you pay attention to the word rest. Probably a third of the occurrences are going to be rest from enemies. Rest from enemies, where Israel has no political enemy. It's just everybody is terrified of them. Everybody is less than them. They have global dominance, complete protection, absolute peace. Their military is at rest to such a degree. It's not as though they have superiority and so everybody else doesn't dare attack them. It's just absolute rest that, to the point that they don't even have a military. Swords are beaten into plowshares. Wow. Okay. So in the process of Christ restoring and reversing the curse, there's going to be an intermediate period where there is absolutely no warfare. You keep reading, you read through the uh, Old Testament this year, you keep paying attention to rest, and you're going to see that rest clearly means God's personal presence in the land. Now this one I do have to give you a couple examples on. Turn to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. We'll pick it up in verse 12. Exodus 33, verse 12. Um, this is when um, Moses is uh, a little bit concerned about his leadership and if the people are going to follow him. And, you know, they've already been complaining. He promises again in 33.2 that he's going to send the angel before him, which he already promised in 23. That's uh, the pre-incarnate Christ the second person of the Trinity. And so, verse 12, Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now therefore, I pray you, if, you found, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said to him, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. God equates his presence with rest. Prophecy, messianic prophecy like Isaiah 11 promises divine presence when Christ returns and when Christ sets up a rule on earth. Psalm 93 to 100 have been called the millennial anthems or the songs of the millennium, the second advent psalms. And these are royal psalms which picture God's rule and dominion and the establishment of social justice. And it is described as rest when there is social justice being carried out with perfection on earth. Furthermore, God's presence is often described as a sheep and shepherd and he will shepherd his sheep, which is exactly true in Psalm 95, verse 7. He says that right before the quote that we're even studying here in, in the exposition of it in, in Hebrews 4. There are messianic implications, and let me just show you a couple that pertain to divine rest. Psalm 132, look at Psalm 132, and we gotta, we gotta, we're going to end up with a five-minute sermon on our text. You guys are very gracious. Psalm 132, look at what it says here. Starting in verse 10, for the, for the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. 
that's talking about the, the anointed is obviously the Messiah. It's the son of David. So often, oftentimes you'll, you'll hear the term David after David has already died and it's in it's anticipation. That's in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the son of David who will rule and reverse the curse. So do not t- turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. So clearly it's not David, it's the fruit of David. It's one of his descendants who they're anticipating here. And it's conditioned. There are conditions on the Davidic covenant. Namely, verse 12, If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I teach them, their sons will also sit upon your throne forever. And so you're waiting for a condition to be fulfilled. Namely, a son of David who doesn't sin. Because the sons of David who sin are chastened. Verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. God equates his presence on earth with the perfect son of David who will establish that rule and reign so that God can dwell on earth. What's divine rest? It's when creation's restored to the state that it was in in day seven. The author of Hebrews wants us to enter that rest. He doesn't want us to miss out. God doesn't want us to miss out. I don't want to miss out. You don't want to miss out. We shouldn't want anyone else around us in this church to miss out. This is a corporate obligation. So now we can appreciate the command of verse 11. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. So we can chuckle. What happens in Wellspring stays in Wellspring. I just preached a 55-minute intro for a five-minute sermon. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent. So helpful that they translate it with the us because this is a plural corporate command. Ladies, this is an obligation you cannot obey in the privacy of your own life. It starts in the privacy of your own life, in your own inner person. And there's corporate obligation to others at GBC. Ladies, let us be diligent. Spare no effort. No effort is too much. No effort is too extreme. You might have ladies around you saying, man, you're way too intense about this. Just go back to Hebrews 4.11. You can't be too intense about this. Spare no effort, because I don't want you to miss out on the rest. I want you to be there, and I want to be there. He's talking about diligence to enter a rest that we currently don't appreciate and aren't experiencing. Be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So when he pictures the example of that wilderness generation that had that much exposure, that heard the sermons of Genesis uh, 1 through 32, all four of those expositions of divine revelation, and saw 40 years of miracles, and they said to God in Numbers 14, nope, they're too big, I'm not going up. He says he doesn't want you to miss out on that. It's as simple as commands about our heart regarding gratitude, Complaining, trusting the Lord, faithfulness, doing what God wants us to do even when we don't want to, even when emotionally our hearts are in knots and our stomach is twisted and torn and we're losing sleep, can we yield our will and obey? Because God spoke. It's the only safe place. 
So now the question becomes how? Verse 12. The only way that you can shepherd your heart, the only way that you can work to rest, is by means of the Word of God. I think this might be the most compelling and most convicting reality about this text, because let's just be frank. How often, when our heart is a mess, is it easier to just go somewhere else? Oh, man, I have trouble. I'll talk to a friend. I'll just shoot some texts over here. I'll type out an email. I'll take care of some daily responsibilities. Not that taking care of daily responsibilities is wrong, but as a distraction, it will never help you or prevent you from hardening your heart when God is speaking. Where do you go? You have to go back to his word. Here's why. Verse 12. For the word of God is living. It's the only thing living. The word of God is living. And I love, I'm going to quote one of my historical heroes, Martin Luther. He, uh, he had a great quote, and he said, he described the, the living nature of the word. I've got to find it here. I, I, okay, here it is. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And he describes the scriptures as this living reality. And that's exactly what our author tells us. The word of God is living. I mean, it is alive. It is accomplishing things in and of itself. Only the Word of God has life to be able to create life and sustain life in the human heart. Only the Word of God lives in such a way that it can actually prevent your heart from hardening. You need a living text. This is the only text that is alive, is this one, written by God. The Word of God is living. Secondly, it's active. And if you see in your notes, uh, does the, do your notes say effective? Okay, so I wrote that in there, and I was trying to, you know, I, I put the NAS word in the italics, because that's a great word, too. But really the sense of, it's where energase. So, you know, you can hear our, where we get our word energy from. Energase in Greek is this word. And so it's, it's active, that's a good translation, but it's actually getting at the effectiveness of it. It's not just that it's, like, frenetic. It's like, you know, like, atoms are bouncing around and stuff's, you know, rotating. And it, no, it's not just that it's active, it's that it's actually effective. It actually accomplishes things. The Word of God is living and it is effective. I'll give you one more quote from Luther. He says, In short, I will preach the Word, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. And the reason I'm reading this to you is because he's about to describe the effective nature of the Word. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences in all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed on Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would that have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. What do you suppose is Satan's thought when one tries to do the thing by kicking up a row? He sits back in hell and thinks, oh, what a fine game the poor fools are up to now. But when we spread the word alone and let it do the work, that distresses him. 
for it is almighty and takes captive the hearts. And when the hearts are captured, the work will fall of itself. It's effective. And so Luther's obviously talking about bringing truth back to the church, but for our purposes, only the word of God is living and effective for preventing our hearts from hardening when we hear God speak. Third, it's powerful. Powerful and precise. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Notice what it describes here, the power and the precision of God's word, in that it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit and of both joints and marrow. Now he's describing in the physical reality two things that are equally physical, and in the spiritual reality, two things that are equally spiritual. What it's, his point is, is saying, I mean, in the, in the medical illustration, it takes a scalpel to, just, to cut between the tissues, right? I mean, it's just like, it's pre- precise and, and fine. In the spiritual reality, how could you possibly separate soul from spirit? I mean, aren't those totally inter- intertwined? Is there even a dis- distinction between the two? And he says, only the Word of God can make those kind of penetrating, precise strokes. It's precise. And notice, the fourth description. Piercing. Sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing. This, is, this has to do with, it exposes. It exposes. It lays us bare and laid open. So when our heart is in knots and our stomach is twisted and we're losing sleep, it's not because of your circumstance. You know that. I know, you, I know you're taught. I know you know that. Remind yourself that. Preach yourself to that with this text and say, it's not my circumstances, Lord. You've done me no wrong, but I'm a mess. Can you, once again, expose, peel back the layers, show me what's going on on the inside? Only the Word of God can do that. That's where hardness of heart comes. And then we, our heart's in knots, we're losing sleep, and we distract ourselves with texting our friends and social media and all the other things, and even legitimate responsibilities, and we just never get back to the Word to get our hearts exposed. We will be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. So fourth is exposing. The word is piercing. And fifth is discerning. The word is able to judge. Able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if there's a difference between four and five, number four is peeling it back, opening it so that it's clear to you, for you to see. And the discerning is the able to judge. That's the able to interpret. It's one thing to say, yeah, I can get you at the data. The Word of God alone can show you what's going on in your own heart. It's another thing to say, but how are you going to interpret that? What interpretation are you going to come to about yourself? Only the Word can give you that interpretation. Only the Word can discern what actually is going on. What label should you put on that thought? What label should you put on that ambition, that dream, or that desire, or that wish? And so verse... 13 explains, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so here he's describing the judgment to come. And ladies, think about this. Picture this judgment. The Lord reigning. He wants everyone in coming into divine rest. He's establishing peace and rest. So it's not so much us going to heaven, it's heaven coming to earth. And he wants you in there. And you're going to come, and there's, you're about to be examined. Okay, This is like we're going to bring back nightmares from high school, right? Some final exam, you're like, oh no, how am I going to do? 
You ever have one of those final exams where they don't tell you what, what's on the exam? You don't even know how to prepare. You just walk in and it's kind of like, they could ask me anything in the world. Those are kind of terrifying exams, huh? This isn't one of those exams. You, you, you realize the, the only way you could know that you're prepared for that exam is for the scriptures to judge you before you get there. You don't have the ability to discern your own heart. You don't have the ability to soften your own heart. The only way you could be prepared to enter divine rest is for the word to do that work before you stand before him. How kind of the Lord for him to give you such a powerful tool so that you are prepared to enter divine rest. He's so kind, isn't he? As you think about the benefit of this warning, we should all be walking out of here this morning just thinking, man, the Lord is so kind. He doesn't want me to get blindsided. He, he took this much effort to warn me against it. And then he gave me this powerful of a tool, his own word, so that I would actually be able to live with a clean conscience, ready to stand before him, knowing that I'm entering his rest. That's what he wants for us. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're so thankful for this time in Hebrews 4. It's such a, such a profound text. and I can only imagine that uh, these uh, dear ladies needed to hear this because it was in your providence. I know personally that I needed to hear this this week once again. Um, Lord, you're just too kind. I, we don't have any other word for it, but just to think that this judgment is coming, we could never be prepared for it apart from your word, and then you gave it to us. Um, obviously, if you wanted everybody to fail, you wouldn't even have to give anyone your word. But here we are with access to your word so that we could even see our hearts softened to see the error of unbelief the deceitfulness of our ways sophisticated justifications exposed lord maybe even as we've talked through this maybe there are justifications that some of the ladies are are even thinking about with regard to their roles their calling their their um, the privileges that you've given to them in their life or some of the burdens and trials that they care and and, and shoulder uh, right now maybe they're even compelled and convicted by little justifications and little sophisticated ways of excusing areas that really need to just be called uh, a specific localized hardness of heart. And if that's the case, Lord, we're just so thankful you brought this to mind. And Lord, we, we just come to you as your children, um, knowing that uh, we might grow and might become mature, but we'll never outgrow being your child. And we just live in a constant state of dependence on your word to expose, to equip, to penetrate, to give us clarity about your perspective. So Lord, we want to see our hearts the way you see them so that we would not harden or stiffen. Expose every possible way that our deceptive little hearts would avoid complete submission to your word.